Hello and welcome to the Mystic Cast, where you join Jack Stafford and Deborah Littleboy, members of the Aetherius Society, the cosmic religion for the Aquarian Age, as we break down the barriers between religion, science, metaphysics, philosophy and mysticism, all of which are really only aspects of the self-same quest for truth. Please note, this is an independent, not production or fact, of the Aetherius Society. Today, our guest is Andrew Cohen. Hello, Andrew. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And you're in the south of India. Yeah, south India, Truvanamalai. Very famous pilgrimage town for Westerners and Indians. It's a very famous temple here. There's a very famous mountain called Arunachala. And the ashram of the great realizer Raman Maharshi is here. So it's a very sacred place. Attracts a lot of people. Mm. And I guess that's why you're there. Is that right, Andrew? That's why you decided to make that your home? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very... Spiritually profound, powerful, magnetic place. Because I've been researching a lot about you, and um, you had your your enlightenment in it. I'm in Italy at the moment. I'm not far from Rome. You had your first spiritual experience in Rome. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed, I do. When I was 16, I had a very powerful awakening experience. Late one night in, a, in an apartment I was living with my mother. Should I, tell, should I describe it to you? Um, yes, please. Yeah, because we, as far as we understand that, was it like a rays of Kundalini or was it, or was it? Well, it could have been, that could have been the catalyst. I was reading William James' Varieties of Religious Experience, which definitely had an influence on me. And we were sitting up late one night and for some reason, the doors of reception just began to open. It seemed like the walls in the room we were sitting in disappeared. And I felt a whole infinite expanse of the universe just was suddenly everywhere. It felt like I was sitting in the middle of the internet. And suddenly it became apparent to me that there's no such thing as death. That all points in space are exactly the same place. And there was an overwhelming presence of a kind of unbearable love that felt physically crushing and actually overwhelming. I felt if it didn't stop, it was going to kill me. Mm -hmm. I'd never been so happy and so awake and so conscious in my life. And I knew at that moment was the only moment I'd actually ever been truly conscious. It was a moment of trying to wake from this. And that's what that's when I, I was a secular Jew before then I was a secular materialist. And it changed my life forever. It sounds like a cosmic consciousness, or is that I think so. I think that's very, very similar to that kind of idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Is it good to Andrew, sorry jumping in, Jack. I do that, Andrew. You'll notice I'm quite rude. Um can, were you doing any practices before that? No. no. Had you been? Had you been? Um, well, not in this life. No. I mean, had you exactly. been spirituality in any way before that time, or was it like a, a bolt out of the blue, complete? Well, I was experimenting with psychedelics, like everyone else was in those things, but I wasn't consciously aware of a spiritual impulse that was driving me or guiding my life. I was. Uh, I hadn't done much introspection, philosophical introspection at that point in my life, so I wasn't really taking that deeply. But I, I didn't know that there was any inherent and meaning and purpose in life or in consciousness, which I discovered in that experience that there's inherent meaning and purpose in the experience of consciousness and in the event of life and manifestation is pregnant with meaning and purpose if only we have the eyes to see it. So that got me started on my quest. And I wanted to be a, a musician at that time. I was very, I wanted to be a jazz musician, but uh, 
I was haunted by this experience for the next few years. I was 16 when it happened. And this experience kept calling me, it kept haunting me. But at the end of the experience, a voice, a voice, I know this sounds a little strange, but a voice said to me, if you surrender your life to me and me alone, you have nothing to fear. I never, I never forgot. Outside of you or in your head? The voice, was it outside or, or within? It within. So at 22, I made up my mind that I wanted to be, I wanted to rediscover this extraordinary state of consciousness that had visited me without any expectation. And I became a kind of a dedicated seeker when I was 22. But the difference between me and many of the other seekers I met at that time is that I knew that enlightenment existed, that it was real, the cosmic consciousness was real because I'd experienced it. I wasn't going on faith as so many seekers have to do. And for some, and I, I, was, I was a troubled young person and I had failed in many things I tried to do, but this was the one thing to wake up and be awakened to enlightened awareness was the only thing I was sure was going to happen one way or the other, sooner or later. I didn't know how, but I knew it was going to happen just a matter of time. Did you develop, the, our master, Dr. King, tells us that when, when the Kundalini rises, when you get a raise of consciousness, you, the cities, the clairvoyance, clairaudience, those, these naturally come. Have you experienced any of these? Uh, not particularly, no, not, not really. I mean, ever since I met my guru, he bestowed upon me a, a great gift, a gift, a gift of the transmission of enlightened awareness. So that I consider to be a great city. That was a gift that came from him, came from God through him, or came from him to me. I certainly didn't earn it. <laughs> Un unearned, mysterious grace. Perhaps we could also, early on in the interview, just so we can get it out of the way, address the elephant in the room, because when we were researching you, the, uh, the words, what's it? guru and uh, controversial came up. I think I've been controversial my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> how, so the, the, how did that guru, trip go? Well, I think the reason is because I've always been a very truthful person. And I've also been very bold and kind of outrageous and um, radical. And I didn't realize when I was a young, I started teaching when I was 31. I was very, very young when I started teaching. So I didn't really realize how ferocious the cultural inhibitions were against the, 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 the truth about the nature of consciousness and about what higher consciousness is all about and the significance of spiritual awakening, how controversial it really is. I mean, I was a smart person, so I thought I understood, but I, I believed when many people came to me and said they want to be free, they want to go all the way and they'll do anything to get there. I thought they, really, I thought they meant it. I didn't realize that the, that the spiritual adventure is, is, is people are jumping into much deeper water than they have any idea that they're getting involved with. And so I was learning on the job and I became, a, I became a spiritual teacher or a guru really overnight. And in terms of the guru question, I, there is a, something that happens to some people when they, ha when they have an awakening experience, which is, which is a gift, uh, a teaching gift. So I should tell you the experience of meeting my guru first, but, um, but after I spent three weeks with him, he told me something was very big was going to happen to me. And I spent three weeks, we were just having, going for walks and talking and having tea with him in his house. And I would speak, I'd ask him all my spiritual questions. And I never heard anybody speak so confidently about the nature of enlightenment before. He was the great H.W. Alpunji, he was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. And at that time, he was boom screen, he was an old, old man, but he didn't, he, he wasn't famous yet. He became famous later in his life. And I never met anybody who spoke so confidently about enlightenment. And, I, and when I was with him, I didn't know that she was actually the most extraordinary person I'd ever met. If he was just a crazy old man, I didn't know. And 
I knew something was happening to me when I was spending time with him, but I didn't know what it was. And he said, Andrew, when you leave me, something very profound is going to happen to you. And I didn't believe him because I said, how does he know what's going to happen to me? Nobody can tell the future. So when I left him, I got on a train to go to New Delhi from his, the city of Lucknow. And when I got on that train, some of this spiritual energy just completely overwhelmed my body and mind. And I, I suddenly realized that I was, I was swimming in an ocean of being. And I, I suddenly saw my body, mind and personality sitting in this train, and I was perceiving it from some place, or some space, some dimension far beyond it. And I was experiencing so much joy and ecstasy and inner freedom and wonder and amazement and joy. I couldn't believe what was happening to me. And I realized that I was being... It felt like I was being consumed by a spiritual presence, an energy and intelligence that I couldn't see, but that I could feel all around me and within me. And I felt like my very being was being consumed. And if this process didn't stop, that I would be nothing left of me. And I was simultaneously exhilarated and grateful and absolutely terrified. And that lasted for three weeks. And during that period and after that, after that period of three weeks was over, I suddenly had the gift of being able to teach. I had access to the depth of wisdom and knowledge about a spiritual awakening, about the evolution of consciousness that I hadn't earned or even learned, that suddenly was available to me. And so there was a measure of mastery that he just bestowed upon me. And, and very quickly, all of my friends just started treating me very differently. And this happened to so, so in my particular case, it was very unusual, but it happened overnight in some strange, strange way. So in, in terms of the guru question, which is, a, which is a bad word I know these days, there is, there is what I believe is called the guru principle. The great Ken Wilber came up with this term called the guru principle. And the guru principle is a, in a, the, the, the awakened capacity to share consciousness and share the wisdom that's bestowed upon us through the awakening of consciousness to other people. It comes spontaneously, seemingly, it feels seemingly from the source of reality itself. It seems it comes from the mind of the Buddha, the mind of the guru, the mind of the... Christ, the mind, and the source of all of reality. There seems to be some internal source. When I was witnessing, when I saw the video about your own great teacher, he seemed to have access to that same source of absolute knowledge in the universe. And it's and people, the people that don't have these kinds of experiences, it sounds unbelievable, but it's actually true. So the guru principle awakens in some people, and then they, they, they become teachers or guides or gurus. And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a function of that, it's almost a function of nature. It's not an easy, when it's for real, it's not an ego trip. It's, it's, it's a blessing. The blessing of people who have this awakened power to share consciousness with other people can, uh, can, can directly transmit their own awakening to other people and they can give people a glimpse of their own potential for liberation, which is the greatest gift somebody can receive. And if they, if they, if they, if they practice what they've been taught, if they, they grow the fire that's been lit in them, they, that can, they can become liberated themselves. Can I ask, please, Andrew, how did you find your master? What what led you to to that particular person? And you, oh, I had had several teachers, and then I kind of figured, and then I got then I got tired of having teachers and gurus. I had a couple, and I was very influenced by the great J. Krishnamurti, who said, "To truth is a pathless land." So I felt at that point, I was, oh, this was going to happen if I I could get there on my own if I just found a place where I had enough discipline. So I was going to go to Korea and live on a mountain. I had a lot of Zen monetaries, and I was going to do a Zen sashin every month and study martial arts and be celibate for five years. I had all planned. But in the meantime, a friend of mine had heard about this wonderful spiritual master who had been a direct disciple of the great Ramana Maharshi. He was supposed to be incredible. 
And I said, well, I'm not interested in going to see teachers anymore, but I think I'll go see them for two, two or three days and then I'll leave and go to Korea. And when I went to see him, he was, he was, he was, a, he was a very powerful man. He was sitting on his bed. There was one other person there. And I told him I have no expectations. And he said to me very loud, that's good. And something happened immediately when I, immediately after I met him, which is I said, how much effort do you have to make if you want to be free? And then he whispered and said, you don't have to make any effort to be free. Now, intellectually, I didn't understand what it meant. But suddenly, but then I, I remember I looked at the ground and I realized when I was looking at the ground that my own true nature was like water, ever freely flowing, ever unobstructed. And it became apparent to me in that moment that unenlightenment was only a thought. And this it took about 20 seconds and I was just looking at the floor, I wasn't saying anything. And then he burst out loud, that's it. And I looked up at him, like shocked, how, did he, how could he hear my own thought process? And that was the beginning of meeting this extraordinary man. And, um, he answered all of my questions and, there, and he, he was uh, sitting with him. It was like sitting in front of a furnace of consciousness, a furnace of, of spiritual, awakened spiritual energy. And if one, if, if, if she loved you and she opened up your heart to his, his presence, it would enter, it would enter your soul. And so I, I knew when I met my, this wasn't an ordinary person. And so he transmitted to me his, his state of consciousness and his, and his heart. And I'm forever grateful. It reminds me of uh, a couple of stories that some of the disciples, Dr. King, have, have relayed. Um, and one of them was uh, a priest, Chrissy Blaze. And she was a very young woman when she first met um, Dr. King. And she had done some work. She thought she was actually quite good at psychic development and, and probing into people's um, auric bodies and seeing what was going on. And so she practiced, and as she was, as she started to delve, um, he he turned around and looked at her, stopped her dead in in, in a track, knew exactly could feel could feel her her mind searching his and, and stopped her. And I was fascinated with that. And so that was the when you were speaking that 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 story came in. And and a second one is somebody that had gone to uh, one of the lectures. Um, never been, never seen Dr. King before, and Dr. King was talking, and he asked in 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 the mind in the mind he asked a question. He's like, "What well, I wonder what happens when?" So mm. whatever it was, and Dr. King stopped what he was saying, looked directly at him, and answered his question. Wow. So he didn't yeah, didn't need any any um, more convincing than that, um, uh, and. Uh, and we know we know that these things can happen because we well for me because I've read them they've never happened to me so to to sit in a room so to speak with somebody that is that has actually had that experience is is actually exciting and humbling is 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 like the the two ways of it um, yeah well those kinds of experiences give us a lot of faith. In the nature of consciousness and the power of consciousness and the miracle of consciousness and uh, blow, blow a hole in our materialistic thinking to change, change us. You realize so much is so much is possible and it's possible for us to be so much more conscious than most of us are most of the time. We have these glimpses, we realize we're just, we're, we're most of us are sleepwalking, we don't even know it. 
So it's possible to be conscious. It's possible to be more conscious. And it's possible for many of us to be a lot more conscious. And if many of us become a lot more conscious, something profound and beautiful and miraculous can happen. We're our troubled species. Desperately needed, I think. Is that where Be Bold and Dream Big came from? Absolutely. And I think now it's more important than ever because many of us are frightened and get, can get a little cynical because so many things seem to be going wrong and there's so many problems that we've created as a species that we're not dealing with that we could if we really wanted to. And it's making all, all of us feel a bit crazy to watch ourselves drive the whole, our whole species, the whole life experiment under all over a cliff for no reason. So we need these kinds of very positive, these, these non-relative or absolute experiences which can give us faith in in existence itself, no, no matter if we make a mess of it or not. <laughs> so can you explain the, um, the forum that you have when you call for visionaries and, and how that would actually, the practices on your online community work in a, in, in a, in a nutshell? So, if I was to join, what would I what would I expect to find? Because I've looked and I've seen a nice a nice yoga room and I've seen a lovely temple and I've seen beautiful wood and 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 it all looks fab. Um, but I come from a discipline where I I do my breathing exercises every day. I do my mantra every day. I do my prayers every day. I have a grateful heart whenever possible. It's very much, I'm still at the having to put like the nuts and bolts work into we all, it. We, we all do. We all do. I think, I don't think, I don't think there's a time when it ever comes to an end really, except for maybe the rarest of rare souls. Because I, I for myself, there, there are long periods of time when I'm in a spontaneous state of flow and ease of being, state of free fall. Sometimes I have to make effort to concentrate, to focus, to control my mind, to be disciplined. But to answer your question, I, I like to, I just, I could get to the crux of the matter. What I discovered through my work over the years, which is a possibility of people coming together in the, in the experience of enlightened awareness. So usually when people are waking to enlightened awareness, it's usually, it's usually something that happens as a subjective experience within the inner domain of the unique individual. It's the experience that the unique eye has. So I was, I was, very, I was wondering, what, what would it be like if we could actually share the ground, the awakening to the ground of being or to that deep singularity of consciousness? What, what if we could awaken to that together? What if you and I could meet there? So what if we could meet as meet in separate individuals in the shared awareness of, of unconditional absolute non-duality? What would the human experience be like? What would the potential for the human experience be like if we could meet in the shared intersubjective state of non-duality. So the goal of the goal of my work is to is to create the conditions that make it possible for people to be able to meet each other in the shared awakened state of non-duality, and then see what's possible. Because it's that that's not an it's not an end. It's a, I think I feel it's a means to a higher end, which is of course the evolution of consciousness. So to get into that point, I mean, I, I teach in many traditional ways. I give I give lectures. I give a lot of talks. I lead meditations and teach people how to meditate. I teach people uh, the fundamental philosophical metaphysical principles of enlightenment philosophy, which are very solid which you understand them. I teach people how to practice the right relationship to the mind and the right relationship to emotions. I teach people how to focus on cultivating a desire to be free and more liberated more than they want anything else in life. And then 
the hardest part of the spiritual life, I'm sure as you both know, is transcending the conscious and unconscious attachment and then identification with the vicious small self called the ego. So a big, a big, the big hardest part of spiritual practice is learning how to let go of this, this intense addiction to the fears and desires of the small self. But, but if we can let go of the fears and desires of the small self, we can awaken to a higher, higher spiritual aspirations, which is the aspirations of the Bodhisattva, which is the awakening to awaken, is the desire to become a vehicle through which consciousness can awaken to itself. Because we realize that the energy and intelligence that created the universe wants us all to become more conscious, wants us all to awaken, wants us to live in majestic, glorious, ecstatic, co-creative happiness and unlimited creative potential. That's what the, that's the energy and intelligence that created the universe seems to have, that seems, that seems to have been built into the plan from the very beginning. And that's what we realize when we wake up. So I try and remove all the obstacles to that end and try to encourage everybody to get in line. Hey, get with get with the program that's already been present from the beginning of time, and yeah, and so what what that looks like is people meditating together, talking together, and learning how to have certain kinds of discussions that are very focused on awakening to these higher principles, which means leaving the ego outside the room and focusing on focusing on catalyzing the, the, the potentials I'm speaking about. Sounds like the path of nanny yoga of wisdom. Would you? Yes, agree? I would agree. It's very much like a path of Jnana Yoga, except the collective dimension of it doesn't generally seem to be part of Jnana Yoga. Jnana Yoga is more my understanding of my imperfect understanding of it. It's more of a solo journey. So it's there's a lot of philosophical focus and clarity in what I'm trying to teach and how I'm helping people to learn how to think. But uh, but it's to me it's the the promise of a collective awakening that I'm so excited about mm. because when it's not my enlightenment but our enlightenment. What becomes possible between us is so beautiful. It's just breathtaking and gives us so much faith in our species and in the opportunity to have this life experience to prove what's possible through the gift of life. So it's in the collective potential of consciousness that I'm very hopeful about. That's definitely in our teachings, isn't it, Deborah? That uh, even a galaxy cannot go back to God until it has raised up all the beings in its. Exactly. So there's that collective, but we're told that uh, that karma yoga is the is the yoga of the yoga of the age, and then the more action and service to others. I mean, you're in you're in service to others, but are you also encouraging your disciples to to be of service? Uh, well, in the context of the teaching I'm giving, yes, but not 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 I don't think not, I don't think in the way that you're meaning it. But I I, I because. I've noticed for for a very long time it seems to be very hard for a lot of people to stay focused on taking this all the way. So yeah. I'm I'm constantly working with people to, to to get them to take a step further and take a step further and just take a step further and never take a step back, never take a step back, and always take a step further. And if we can take a step further together, then the potential the potential in, in in consciousness between us gets greater and greater. And that's what I'm mainly focused on. Because as you know, in the spiritual life, it's easy to wake up, but it's even easier to fall back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Every day. Yeah. And yeah. So, so, if we, so the goal is not waking up. It's how do I stay awake? Because if I stay awake, I can keep going. People fall back to sleep and their value, they fall, they fall back to their the values they used to have before they became interested in consciousness. They say, oh, what, how did that happen? So, oh, and they wake up again and they remember. So how can we that learn? That's true. 
I'm sorry, no, my fault. You go for it. I was just I was just saying that within our within our teachers we we tried as a group to do to develop healthy habits because and to know that actually it is a case of um bringing up old old conditioning and then re redesigning it and it has to be uh a, a has to be a daily a daily thing um and, and you just you just saying that is just sort of endorsing everything we've got we we in our we've got a facebook group eh? so we're in a really quite dark a dark place trying to put some light across there but um together we 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 try to work together as as a unit to encourage each other not to fall back to sleep again and the other thing that that come from your website i think it was where you treat intuition and rationality as equal and that's so much what we've been taught by our by the cosmic masters that you have to use what what they call cosmic logic so you have to have a rational thought and question everything but again you you have to tune your body in to listen to what your body's telling you and it is that is that dance that um about balance learning learning how to do both gracefully improving great gracefully and passionately yeah. we want yeah. we want fierce fear, faith and fierce rationality yeah it's 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 a dance i fall over in a lot i have to say i had zig i call it like the zigzag and i might <laughs> Thinking too much or come to, you know, sagging the other way to, 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 to try and level up. And I seem to spend my whole life like that snake on, a, on this zigzag journey, like, oh, I've overdone it that way. And I've overstepped it this way and overthink it. And that, which I know is all ego, but it's, it's, um, it, it holds, it holds me back. But at the same time, I know that I can't just go airy fairy because I'm good at airy fairy, Andrew. I'm probably one of the best. If there was a, if you could get a medal for airy fairiness, I think that I would be teaching it. Um, so well, we, we, we all we all fail every day. We all make mistakes, and so being there's no escaping being an imperfect human being. <laughs> the awakening to enlightened awareness does not relieve us of our imperfections, but what enlightened awareness can bestow upon us the the experience of perfection or the inner state of perfection, well. An, an imperfect human being can experience perfection. We can, I'm, it's my understanding that we can never be perfection, but we can experience perfection. And so in, in response to what you were just saying, I think the most important thing is we never step back. Some people, when they wobble around and they make mistakes, they get they get they lose their confidence and they want to step back. And it's, you know, don't ever step back. It's better to step forward slowly one step at a time. But when we step back, we can lose our, we lose our, the inner momentum. And, and I think it's also very important not to draw negative, negative conclusions about ourselves. If we misstep or make mistakes, as we all will, but it's, that's part of the learning process. That's that's part of the painful learning process at all stages of life. No, most important thing is that we learn from our mistakes. Do you think, like some perhaps some of the the new age teachings is more is too focused on self development? You know, it's too focused if, on, the on the narcissistic self chains. Yeah, or if I can just get control of my mind in this life, then that's that's mission done. You know, I. If I can just do that, do you think that's 
it's more of if it's more of a, a, a service to others focused, you know, that you could absolutely, look. absolutely not my will, but thy will be done. Yeah. Surrender of the small self, not infatuation with the small self. So a lot of a lot of the new age teachings are airy fairy because they're so focused on our narcissistic self and so focused on how I feel. And the point is part of being human. And some days we're not going to feel that good. Some days we're going to feel great. You know, you can't, these things can't always be controlled. But where is our attention fundamentally focused? Is it focused on the highest possibility, the highest principle? Are we constantly inspiring for the highest, even if we're failing? Or is our attention on, on how the ego feels from moment to moment? Because if it is, it's going to be a miserable life. So a big part of waking up spiritually is, is lear learning, learning, cultivating the habit of high thinking. Keeping our attention very focused on what's, what's possible and on the highest principles, and you know, if you have a group of people who are awakened to some degree, who are speaking together and sharing these higher principles, and there's one person in the group that can't stop talking about themselves and their personal problems, that one person will just bomb out the whole group. They'll destroy the the the, the energy, the energy and field <laughs> because they just bring it down because they they won't give up their selfishness even then. And so, for all of us, in terms of the, my notion of my partial my response to your question of karma yoga is can we for each other's sake keep our attention away from our the pettiness of us the small self mm. because it, because if we, if we keep our energy focused on something much higher there's there's an energy there that can that can keep us walking the straight and narrow and keep us beyond our mind because the problem is the condition the ego the conditioned mind when it's connected to the ego can drag us back down way back down into hell very easily and a lot of people wanted to start doing psychotherapy at that point to try and work things out. I'm saying you don't necessarily have to work things out. You just have to stay out of hell. Stay out of those places <laughs> or those dark rooms in your own mind. And it's going to lead you darker and darker into, into, into awful, awful, hellacious spaces that exist in the psyche. So I don't believe, like a lot of people do, we need to work all this out and spend hours, days, weeks, months, years with flashlights going in there and pulling all this dirty stuff out of the closet. We need to, we all need to know what makes us tick and why we are the way we are. But fundamentally it's staying, try to stay beyond the mind as much as possible. The more we can stay beyond the mind is the spiritual energy. This greatest mm -hmm. spiritual energy will awaken to itself within us and will carry us forward. And the spiritual energy that I'm talking about, the energy of enlightened awareness has never been hurt, wounded, traumatized, or victimized and has no problems to overcome. It's full of, its essence is pure positivity and creative inspiration. That that is its own nature. If we've been awakened to that, we don't. We, we, it takes care of everything. But also, I meant perhaps there's a a monk in a monastery who has complete control of the mind and is very peaceful and is, you know, doing his practices, you know, twelve, fifteen hours a day, and but there's someone in a in an orphanage, working, feeding the children, has wow. terrible mind control. You know, no presence. You know, not can't concentrate for for fifteen seconds, and uh, not doesn't even believe in God. But they're advancing much faster spiritually. Well, but I but I would humbly question that your your image there, because someone who's working in an orphanage, taking care of people in need, if they do it with love, it, yeah. yeah, I imagine they would. Be, I imagine they would be if they were there. But the, I, they obviously have, would have a lot of concentration and a lot of compassion, otherwise they wouldn't be there, which would already put them in a very yeah. lofty place spiritually. You know, they already have a lot going for them if they're going to be doing that kind of work at all. Because very selfish people wouldn't be anywhere near a place like that. Yeah. And the other thing is that in terms of the monk and the monastery having perfect control over the mind, I mean, 
I, I said, with all humility, no, let's not believe everything we read. <laughs> I think even discipline monks and monasteries can have trouble controlling their minds. Uh, but I just mean if there was two young people. Sorry, I just mean if there was two, if there was a young person with like choosing which road to go down. You know, maybe they think, oh, I should join a monastery because this will take me out of samsara or whatever. Okay. whatever the, or they could go down the road of, you know, go into the Maya and be of service. And that's the order of the day. But do you think that, um, I mean, I think the image you, you're, you're conjuring of, of the working in the, working with people that are in need mm. can be a, a very powerful form of spiritual practice that can help us to wake up and help us to not stop thinking about ourselves. Yeah. Kind of work can elevate us in a profound way simply because our attention is on the suffering by the people. It's not on our own suffering. And that can be a source of a profound liberation. I mean, I think, I think <laughs> the inside of some monasteries can be as samsaric as anywhere else. It just depends who we're, t who we're talking about and what they're actually doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've walked that road. I, I imagine you have some stories about it. Well, I, I think that I've, I've been doing this long enough to be very realistic about human nature. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm much less naive than I was when I was younger. Mm. But as human beings. Yeah, because maybe instead of five years on the mountains in Korea, if you knew not what you then, what you know now, you might have done different, gone down a different road. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, well, Life teaches us tough lessons to learn. Mm. Deborah had a good story about Krishnamurti. You told me the other day, Deborah, that he had, it was his life. This time was his, he became spontaneously enlightened, not just because you can, you know, you, you don't need to, you can do it in the moment. You don't need to do a lot of practices, but that was his past life karma. Did you tell me that story, Deborah? I can't remember telling you that, but I do know that I read somewhere that he had taken on some initiations from the Devic Kingdom and taken on the very strict laws of the higher Devic Kingdom, um, which made him seem as if he he was um, didn't have any compassion for his followers. So he came across as quite hard and not... Um, and not understanding, and so then he couldn't let them be used by the Lord Maitreya as the as a vehicle for for his teachings, because he had put the self imposed box in place. But I've got a feeling, looking at your face, we're complete. We we're not even in the same forest, let alone the same tree, <laughs> are we? <laughs> no, never mind. We have a lot of these these moments, Andrew, Jack, and I. Um, Two two different stories that that don't quite match. So no, no, Jack. I should say no. I don't don't oh, okay. think it was me. Well, I just meant that because we do have to do a lot of practices. You have to like Dr. King. He had to do ten years of yoga to burn up the karma before he could, you know, attain enlightenment, cosmic consciousness. Before he could raise Kundalini to the to the Brahma chakra. So there is just that aspect that you have to. You don't get anything for free. You have to do your practices. Oh, you have absolutely, to work. absolutely. Yeah. That's so, that's so true. But the extraordinary thing about Krishnamurti, and I think what had what, what helped him catalyze his enlightenment was that he was brought up to be, he's recognized to be the second coming, the Lord Maitreya, as a, as a boy on the beach in, in Madras. He's recognized and he's brought up to be in the Theosophical Society, 
the betrayer, the betrayer, the second coming. And he had a lot of these astral experiences that I think you were describing with these, with these ascended masters and all kinds of initiations that I've said read about them. But my understanding is that he, he, he had an awake in his awakening, he saw through a lot of these mythic ideas and these mythic belief structures about spiritual metaphysics, about hierarchical systems in, in, in Eastern and Western traditions. And that's when he said, truth is the path of Islam, and he was pointing people more directly to, to consciousness itself. And my understanding is, my imperfect understanding about his story is that I think that had a lot to do with his powerful awakening when he was about 18 or 18 or 19, which happened, I think, over a three-day period when he went to California, mm -hmm. sitting, sitting under a tree in Ojai, and it was a, he had a powerful transformation. But I agree with you, he, he, was, he, was, uh, he was very difficult to follow. He, he was speaking from a place way beyond where most people could actually understand what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. But there, he, he was he's such an exemplar of such purity and such obvious spiritually conscious elegance and grace and sincerity and seriousness. He was, he was, a, he was like a pure gem, a pure soul. Mm. So beautiful. Wanted, I had an experience with him once when I was in Seeker in Switzerland. I went into a big tent in Zahn, and in Switzerland there was a thousand people listening to him. He was sitting on, his, on a chair on a platform. And I didn't know anything about his dharma at the time. And I was with my girlfriend at the time, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. And I had an Indian guru at the time, and I knew, I knew where I was going. I knew how I was going to get there. I was very sure of myself. So I couldn't understand what he was saying, and I realized intellectually I was completely lost. So I stopped trying to understand it, and I just made, I made a, a disciplined decision to follow the sound of his voice, no matter what. So whenever my mind would wander, I'd bring it back to the sound of his voice and kept bringing it back again and again and again. And then after the talk was over, people started leaving, and I went to a woman and said, when's the next talk? She said, day after tomorrow. I said, why? why? She said, oh, because it's very deep. You know, you have to let this stuff sink in. And I thought, you've got to be kidding, lady. What's, what's, what, why is he so selfish? She's going to make us wait. And thing. I was very arrogant. That's a young, young guy. So anyway, we went back to our hotel, and I took a nap. And when I woke up, I felt different. Something felt different, and I didn't know what it was. And I scanned my body, and it wasn't physical. And it was, there was this overwhelming feeling of joy, and I suddenly felt this freedom to question everything, to question, to inquire. Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly I wasn't so sure of myself anymore that I knew where I was going to go, and I knew how I was going to get there. I was on a yogic path. I was so sure of myself. And I felt this, this freedom to inquire, this freedom to question everything had been, he tr had been absorbed from Trump at the sound of his voice, which is a big part of his message, was to be, be a fearless inquirer. And I, I, and I got the transmission directly from his, his, the sound of his voice in a way that was absolutely inspiring. This is our cornerstone of our, of our teachings, which is like the nine steps to take us to the sun, to be lords of the sun. And the transmissions that we get from a, an entity which um, we know as Mars Sector 6, when we, when we listen to the vibrations or we allow the vibrations to absorb so absorb them we actually take from that and i know myself that that i almost like um suck it in <laughs> at some sort of cellular level so i'm listening to the words yeah i get the words i can read the words too but the actual vibrations of what what i'm 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 hearing 
and 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 the rhythm of how that voice comes through is yeah i get what you said it's it's what i'm trying to say it's it's so it's it's like a fast track to to um condense and 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 expand at the same time all of that information like an extra layer it's transmission it's living transmission mm. living transmission of kind of, of of knowledge and spiritual energy and intelligence it literally gets transmitted directly to the mind it's, it's miraculous how it happens but it can't happen under the right circumstances yeah. so much it's, it's a transmission of information trans intellectual trans yeah beyond the mind and that's why we're so fortunate with our teachings that everything was recorded to the highest quality possible and we have just to listen and listen again these highly evolved beings speaking through the voice box of our of our um master uh it's just such a gift miraculous I, 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 I can't. If day, daily, I, I thank whatever part of me got me to the society, because <laughs> you know the lower part of me would would still be just well. Exactly. No, no, no point at all. No, no, no point at all. It's just less zig, yeah. more zag. Yeah, two two big zigs, chicks and zags. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so to listen, almost through the words to the spaces between the words is powerful stuff mm. just listening to you andrew um i found because you speak very quickly i i'm i was doing much the same thing see seeing like the white spaces between your words which is i find it, I find it amazing so yeah anyway Enough about me, because that's just my ego self going on. But you're very fortunate because you're a finder. The people have found what they're looking for, and they know, and I have a measure of liberation because of that. It means you means you means you you don't have doubt anymore. It doesn't mean there's not more work to do and more more development to happen. But you found it. You know you found it. That becomes a source of spiritual self confidence. Makes you a very very lucky woman. There's a there was a quote it, there was a quote there was a quote in the transmission which we use as a motto is it of the uh, ecclesiastical part is it that brother choose well stand fast know god beautiful that's, that's wonderful <laughs> yeah. wonderful and that again for me because i'm not an educated woman the the words are very simple they're almost like children's book words and they're not big words and and I understand them. So at, at some level, at some level, I understand them intellectually. But I know at a, a much deeper level, at the big dip level, at the, at the higher mind level, I understand them a lot more. Um, yeah. the, a, lot of the, a lot of the deepest truths we understand in ways that the mind cannot, cannot grasp. That the heart can recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. Incredible. Indeed. You are you are an amazing man. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. It's very sweet. Thank you. So it's delightful to talk with you about your 
you, 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 both of you, and from what I saw in the video, I saw all of all of the disciples of the master seem to be so intelligent, so coherent, so sincere, and so deeply touched by by the spirit of the absolute, which is quite unusual. You all have a lot of spiritual self confidence. It's very powerful and obvious. You're lucky. Yeah, we're there's such a small organization. Not many people have found it yet because it, uh, you know, you say Master Jesus came from another planet, and the, the Krishna came from another planet, and Buddha came from another planet, and so the UFO aspect and that uh, it's a big ask for many people to, to accept. <laughs> sure. you know? That's for yeah. sure. Did you, uh, so you've been, you've met many, uh, many teachers. How many enlightened people can you say you've met? Is it one hand or? No, a lot more than that. Yeah. It's a, it's a good situation. Or... Over, the, over the years, I met a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. All different kinds of people, but a lot of, a lot of the way enlightenment manifests itself in different people. So it's so very different. When I was, when I was a young seeker, I wanted to know. Not only what did enlightenment feel like, it's an inner subjective experience. What did it look? What did it, what did it look like? How did human beings who were supposed to have access to this miraculous state of consciousness? What did they look like? What did they walk like? What did they talk like? And then I found out they're all very different. Mm. But often, what they have in common is that they'd awaken to this this ultimate mystery that the mind can never grasp, and they and the not the knowing of this mystery miraculously liberated them from from from, from attachment to the mind in a way that they freed their souls. And, they, and they, they, they were all aware of it. They all knew it. And also what happens with this, when this miracle happens is it, it awakens a capacity for, for love, for kind of an impersonal expression of love and care. And not compassion, but not, all, not merely unholy compassion, but kind of, it, it's just it's, it's the love of the self for itself in all of us. Beautiful. All right. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you. Thank you both very much. You've been very kind and very wonderful to talk to. All right. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Much love to both of you. Bye bye.